and welcome to Talking Aussie Books, a weekly podcast bringing readers and writers of Australian fiction together. I'm Claudine Tanellis. As an avid reader and passionate advocate for Australian fiction, I make it my mission to spotlight local talent. So if you're looking for your next read or simply want to learn more about the Australian literary scene, this podcast is for you. Grab yourself a cuppa, sit back and relax. Petronella McGovern is a Sydney-based author of three novels, all born of her fascination with people, what makes us tick, how we view the world and the lies we tell each other and ourselves. Petronella exploded onto the literary scene with her debut novel, Six Minutes, in 2019 and quickly followed it up with The Good Teacher in 2020. This year, she's back with another fabulous novel, a gripping, edge-of-your-seat psychological suspense thriller that will have you flipping pages till the heart-stopping end. Published by Ellen and Unwin, this is a novel that truly showed Petronella's penchant for storytelling with its rich and multi-layered narrative along with its cracking pace. A book that takes a deep dive into some of Australia's tragic secrets, as well as the experience of being a teenager in today's society and whether things ever really change from one generation to the next. I'm thrilled to welcome Petronella back to the podcast today to talk about her new book. Hi, Petronella. Hi, Claudine. Thank you for that wonderful introduction. Such a pleasure. Uh, I wanted to say congratulations on the on the release of The Liars. I'm seeing it absolutely everywhere and the reviews I've seen have been incredible. How are you feeling now that it's out in the world? Well, there's always that nervousness before, you know, before it goes into bookshops and before people start reading. And then um, I had some early reviews, which were wonderful. And then everyone, friends have been saying, oh, I've read it. It's amazing. So now I'm relieved. Now I'm happy and relieved and very excited. Oh, that's so awesome. Now, this book was delayed by COVID. How long ago did you start working on it? I think I started just before the pandemic. So I was, I'd sort of started just maybe the December before the pandemic, perhaps. So it wasn't too delayed. It was more about scheduling, really, rather than delays. As I mentioned in my introduction, this really was a complex story, weaving events of the past and the present together in a compulsive race to solve a 30-year mystery. I wanted to ask you, Petronella, where did the idea first come from? Well, as you say, it's quite a complex story. So there's a, three different storylines and three timelines as well. Various different ideas came together, but one of the main uh, inspirations was when my daughter turned 15 and she said, oh, mum, can I go to this beach party? And I suddenly thought back to my teenage years and parties and teenage parties and I suddenly realised I was the mother now, you know, (laughs) (laughs) which is a scary thought. Um, And I knew exactly what happened at teenage beach parties. And Originally, I was thinking, oh, no, things have changed since I was a teenager and um, girls are treated with more respect now. And it was really just then at that moment, she told me a few things about the parties and I was like, "Uh." and then the Chanel Contos survey came out of the Eastern Suburbs Private Schools in Sydney, all about sexual assault at teenage parties and then Brittany Higgins in Parliament House. And then we were marching for justice for women yet again. So originally, I was thinking of doing a story where the mother and daughter's experiences are different but in the end I've written about parallels across history over three timelines. I want to talk a little bit more about that sort of generational disconnect later but for those who haven't read the book yet I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit more about the story. Yes of course so The Liars is set in the small seaside town of Kinta Bay and it's been through the bushfires and the floods and the pandemic and now it's bouncing back and the tourists are finally returning. And just as the town is getting back on its feet, Sienna, the local local teenage girl, finds a skull in the National Park when she's doing her history assignment. 
The history assignment is about the untold story of a colonial massacre by the town founder, which no one wants to talk about. So she decides to video the skull and the story and sends it to the media. It's on national news that night and the town instantly goes into turmoil. In the meantime, her mother, Mary, is a journalist on the local newspaper and she thinks the skull is more likely to be related to teenage parties, which they used to have out there in the National Park in the 1990s and a schoolmate who went missing near the killing cave where this skull was found. So the police start to investigate and the family and the community must work out who's telling the truth and who are the liars. Such a fascinating premise for a story, Petronella. I absolutely loved it. Now, Kinton Bay was a long way from the suburbs of the Northern Beaches where you set The Good Teacher. And it's obviously a fictional community, but I wondered if you had somewhere particular in mind when you, when you were writing this story. Well, there were sort of two different aspects to that landscape and there's a lot about the landscape of Kinton Bay. Part of it was that I was writing in the pandemic and we're lucky enough to live on a national park and we're, so we're doing a lot of bushwalking um, behind our house and there's all these wonderful sandstone rocks and the gum trees and just this landscape that I kept looking at and I kept thinking about these rocks and the history that they held, you know, what had happened in the past and and you know, almost, almost you know, the rocks are kind of, I don't know, the history keepers in a way, they, they know what's happened. So there was that sort of, I guess, atmospheric feel to my writing in terms of looking at the landscape. And then also when I was younger, we used to go up to Port Stephens a lot. Well, we still do, but we're not in a pandemic. <laughs> We'd go to Port Stephens almost every Christmas. So while, while Kinton Bay is not Port Stephens and it's, it's actually the fictional place is further north than that, it's so, sort of some of that landscape is inspired by that area, which where I used to go quite a lot. I found it really fascinating and you were able to really evoke such a sense of place in this novel. It made me feel like I knew it, but uh, uh, clearly I, I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, and it's funny, like part of the reason I gave it a fictional name is because it could be any town in Australia. In fact, when my agent, my my agent who's retired now, read it early on, he said, oh, my gosh, you've been to Lake Entrance in Victoria and you've met my cousin, have you? And I'm like, <laughs> no, I've never been to Lake Entrance. It's like, this could be where I grew up. So it's, yeah, it's that sense that it, it could be, you know, it's on, it's set on the mid-north coast of New South Wales, but it could be almost any, any small town and really any town that's, that's also inland it's not it's a story that's kind of relevant to a lot of a lot of different places now the relationship between mary and sienna the two two of the point of view characters was a complex relationship which i thought you represented so incredibly well mary was a mother who thinks that she knows where her kids are at all times she's got the location app going she's a prominent <laughs> member of the local town and she believes her helicopter parenting is going to stop her kids experiencing the things that she did when she was a teenager you talked a little bit about this before, but I wanted to know why, tell me about that and why was it important for you to explore this in the story? Again, I think there's a few different things for me. The, the, the idea that something had happened to a mother at that age and now the daughter was at this age and was really, so she was reliving it and concerned that the same thing would happen to the daughter and then becoming overprotective. I was interested in, in that idea. But also, so Mary has twins, so Sienna and her brother Taj, and she doesn't behave the same way to the son. And I was interested in how we behave differently as parents to our boys and girls mm. and how we're often overprotective of the girls. So I have an older son and he'd say, can I catch a bus home at night? And I'd like, yeah, yeah, that's fine. 
And then my daughter got to the same age and I go, oh, no, I'll pick you up. Oh, no, you shouldn't be out after dark. It is a difficult conundrum because, you know, then she might catch the bus and then she'd say, oh, there were these creepy men on the bus watching us, you know, and it was late at night and I felt scared. And so then, you know, do you protect them? Do you give them the independence? It's it's a real balance, I think. And I wanted to look at that in the book. So look at both how we how we treat daughters, but then also how we treat sons as well. It's a topic that I have a, a discussion with my daughter about. It's not that, you know, you don't trust your daughter to be out in the world and to be able to get herself from A to B, but it's the other people. Yeah, exactly. And having been a teenager and, and an adult, you know what some of those people are like. So <laughs> Yeah, it's uh, you're trying. So you are trying to protect them, but then you want to create the independence as well. It is yeah. tricky. Sienna was unlike her mother. I think Sienna has a lot of agency. She knows exactly what she wants to do. She's very determined. But it still didn't stop what happened to her, did it? No, but I think the difference is in. So there, there is some change between when I was a teenager to now because mm. I think you know, as you say, she has agency and then she does, well, I don't want to give spoilers, but, you know, she does respond in a different way to her mother in that situation. And so I think there have, you know, there have been some changes, obviously, and I think especially with men as well, they're far more aware and, you know, we're also bringing up boys, so they're aware of, I'll try not to say, the (laughs) creepy men, but, you know, that's what I'm trying to say, the creepy men, the men who are not so nice. But I think as a community, we're all all far more aware of it now. And Mm -hmm. and when I was doing research uh, back to the 1990s where one of the timelines is set, you could see the different perspective, the different, it's a, a different perspective of the police and the community about certain rape cases that happened at the time that oh yeah that that teenage girl was drunk or she was wearing a short skirt and all that sort of thing there's a little bit of that now but I think we've moved on quite a lot and we would say straight away it doesn't matter if she was drunk that's irrelevant she was sexually assaulted it's irrelevant what what she was wearing so it does feel we've moved on a bit a little yeah yeah a little and I think I, what I was going to say was that obviously women's circumstances and our fight for equality in all aspects of our lives is still a work in progress on some levels. Things are much better now than for our mothers and we hope that we're improving things for our daughters and future generations. But toxic masculinity is still something we're grappling with, isn't it? It is. And I, I did want to show in the book how toxic masculinity, which is that sort of stereotypical, you know, aggression by men and well and teenage boys in this in this story and violence against women how it not only affects women it affects the men as well it affects Mm -hmm. the teenage boys who are growing up with it in this story there's a there's a teenage male gang and it affects the other boys at school and then it affects how the community develops and and I think that's what I wanted to show that it, it creates dysfunction across a whole range of you know people not just not just the women who have been hurt, you know, hurt in it, particularly in this situation. I heard this story from a man who said, and this is slightly different, but but similar, who said he had he he used to paint as a child, and his father said, oh, "What are you doing painting? You're such a sissy. Don't paint. You can't. You shouldn't be painting." And he he put down the paintbrush and he did not pick it up for fifty years. So there are men who are trying to follow their talents, their dreams ambitions that aren't necessarily in the male realm inverted commas 
and that's affecting them as well. Yes, yeah, so interesting. And that's obviously made its way into your manuscript as well, which uh, into your mm. story. It's so interesting to me that these things happen and they do affect people's lives for a very long time. Yes, and, and, and in the story, there's that underlying anger of some of the men because they can't be themselves. It's often said in the context of discussing crimes and corruption that leads to crimes that bad things happen when good people do nothing. How aptly do you think this describes some of the characters in your novel? Mm, I think that's perfect. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I think that is, yeah, I mean, the good, some of the good people try to do things and, uh, you know, obstructed or, or not listened to. And that's part of what I was trying to look at is these sort of hidden histories about what's what's revealed what's told and what's lied about what's you know what's hidden deeply and it's when those people are not heard and not listened to so in some situations yeah there is one character who's trying hard in the 1990s to get heard but um no one will listen so yes yeah yeah, I think that's a that's very apt. Yes. Yeah. Do you think things would have been different if people had called out the things that were happening in the killing cave? Yeah, I believe so. Well, I hope so. I mean, mm. there is the whole there is the whole thing about who's owning the balance of power in the town, and so there is that. I'm trying to talk without too many yes, spoilers, <laughs> and, and that's part of you know the hidden stories because whoever controls the story about the town controls the town in a way and that's what I was interested in the history of the town and how that's then developed into the way it functions today and who who's in charge I'm talking very obliquely sorry <laughs> no no that's that's perfectly fine everyone read the book first and then listen and you'll know what I mean <laughs> and it might just intrigue them enough to go and pick up the book right <laughs> Another important element of this story, you know, as you've alluded to and as I've alluded to, was the history of Kinton Bay and the fact that the locals were unwilling to face the truth underpinning the town's settlement. You made some mention of the fact that there is movement in some towns to be renamed so as not to continue to pay tribute to the bloodshed or violence on which the towns were settled. Is that an actual movement? Yes, but it's very stop and start, I feel. And one of the towns I'd looked at, they were trying to change the name because the man who the town was named after had allegedly poisoned a group of Aboriginal people with rat poison in the flower. So that horrible, you know, that horrendous history that, mm. that is there that we have. And in this town, only six people voted to change the name and the rest of them all voted against changing the name. So I think there's the people are people are pushing and trying to create awareness, but then it's not always happening. But then we look in the Northern Territory, the Northern Territory as it seems to have done amazing things, going back to Indigenous names, so, you know, even with Uluru and Katachuka, all that sort of thing that we have been able to, well, they've been able to do it there and some of the towns there have changed as well. And I think I do say at some point, Mary says, if if Moscow and Beijing and you know, all these huge cities in India can change their names, why can't we change the name of Kinta Bay in this situation? Seems sort of hard to hard that we're not doing more. What I found really interesting in this book, Petronella, was the idea that the Indigenous people had the history of the founding of the town was part of their story and they knew exactly what had happened but nobody was willing to listen to them and so there's the idea in your book well not the idea there's this constant sort of refrain in your book about it being the the winners in history that write history yes that's right and I and I grew up in Bathurst and you know I went to school in Bathurst and Bathurst was one of the first inland towns that was 
colonised, settled, invaded. So, you know, there were the local Wiradjuri people who, and there was sort of harmony and not, but then there were wars, a war of resistance, there was a Bathurst war, martial law. And at school, we, we learned nothing about this, you know, and I went to university and discovered this sort of different history, which wasn't, wasn't even about Bathurst, it was about Tasmania. And I was kind of shocked that I'd gone through this education for whatever, 12 years, and, and I'd never, ever got this sense of what had really happened. And, and I grew up on a farm, so I was growing up on Wiradjuri country. And it just really, I guess it's, it's always been that sort of shock that you assume as a child, as a younger person, that what you're learning at school is the whole fact, you know, the whole truth. And then um, you discover it's not. And so it's great now that our teenagers, our kids are learning a lot more Aboriginal culture and history at school, which is fantastic. There's still a long way to go uh, as well. But yeah, so I was interested in sort of looking further into that, the hidden histories. And I did a lot of research. The University of Newcastle has a massacre map, which shows massacres you know, all over Australia. But it is hard because it's mostly oral history and then they're trying to find any kind of references to written history. So there is that trickiness, which I think then comes with, you know, the white victors as, mm. as we are, or as, as, the, as the power is here, who won't acknowledge an oral history all the time. They, they want to see something that's, you know, written down by the acknowledging it in a history book, in a newspaper. You've got some Indigenous characters in your book. You know, you've got Kyle and you've got Auntie Bim, who I thought were terrifically drawn characters. But I wondered, did you have any concern about writing Indigenous characters in your book? Uh, yes, I was I was nervous. So I did a, a, an awful lot of research. I spoke to quite a few people. I had a friend who who is a Camilla Roy woman who had a look at it all a number of times and gave me some guidance as well. You know, they're minor characters. I'm never writing from their viewpoint. Mm. I'm not I'm not trying to tell their story. And as part of the story, Auntie Bim says, you know, we don't need a pretty white girl telling our story about Sienna who's campaigning in this way. But it is this problem about about Auntie Bim not being listened to. For, she's been trying to tell the story for 30 years and no one's been listening. Yeah. And I feel it's the same as with, you know, equality for women. We need everybody to speak up, not just the women. And I think it's the same with the Indigenous issues. We need everyone speaking up about the issues. Uh, whilst I understood why Auntie Bim said that, I applauded Sienna for being the person that was willing to bring it up when everybody everybody was telling her to shut up. Yes. <laughs> yes. And yeah, and 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 dismissing Auntie Bim. So that's the trouble. She, you know, she couldn't get any traction. Whereas Sienna, who was, you know, channeling Greta Thunberg as an as an angry young teenager, was getting a bit more. Uh, not always the right attention, but yes, getting more attention at that point. There's a beautiful theme that runs throughout this book, and it's a whale theme. It runs right throughout this novel. I wanted you to tell me more about that and about Migaloo in particular. I like whales, but I don't love them, and I'm not always sure how the, how I had so much whale thing end up in here, but. <laughs> But uh, Sienna's dad, who's another point of view character, Rollo, he runs a whale watching cruise. And I was kind of looking for him to have a business that, because there's a, a business development in town and part of the story is about uh, trying to create more business for, town, for the town, but also the impact on the environment. And so I wanted Rollo to have a, a business that needed both 
you know, the tourists to come, but also needed a pristine environment. So I really liked the idea of him having a whale watching cruise, which kind of then led to these um, assignments that Taj has in the book about whales. So I did, yes, uh, you'll, you'll learn more than you ever wanted to about whales in the book. And I felt like, like, so part of it kind of reflects human nature and what's happening in the story and, and some of that nature is great. So some of it's about mother love and maternal protection. And then some of it's about more like the teenage male gang and, the, you know, when the young male whales are fighting for the female the female whale to impregnate her. Mm. So I was looking at those kind of parallels with human nature. But then also the whole story of the whale, of whaling in Australia or whaling in the world, you know, whaling progressed, inverted commas, the Industrial Revolution, we use whale oil for everything. We even had it in our margarine and it was in factories. So it, it kind of made the world progress but then at the expense of the whales obviously because then they were nearly wiped out and then we have this amazing conservation story where I think in the 60s or early 70s there were only 100 humpback whales off the New South Wales well off the Australian east coast and now it's it's over 40,000 so you know which is amazing so I was very interested in that as a sort of I don't know, analogy of what I was writing about and Migaloo, well, I love Migaloo. Mig so Migaloo is the white, I say albino whale, but technically that's not quite correct, but I won't go into all the research. <laughs> but a white whale who swims up and down the coast, of the east coast of Australia. And then they hadn't seen him for ages and ages. And just as the book came out, there was a story in the paper, of a white whale washed up on the south coast dead and everyone's like oh my god is it Migaloo but it was not so we're still looking still checking where Migaloo might be and does Migaloo have significance to the indigenous community yes Migaloo does and and Migaloo means white means white whale I think now I've, <laughs> I've lost my whale rights <laughs> <laughs> but um the whale is certainly a totem in a number of saltwater indigenous groups up and down up and down the coast and obviously all around the coast of Australia a very important animal in Aboriginal culture. Pitchinella, if there was one thing that you'd like readers to take away from this book what would it be? Well well one thing well I'd love them to firstly to enjoy a page turner and be entertained because that's my main aim but then also to maybe think about these hidden histories and their own community and how things are named uh, but just to think about it Someone said, oh, it really made me have a think about my own town. And I thought, mm. yeah, I think that's what I would like people to, to have a think. <laughs> There's a lot going on in the book. So firstly, to enjoy the story and be entertained and page turn those pages. That's my primary aim. The last time I spoke to you, I think I might have asked you for some tips for writers out there. But this time, and now that you've got three books under your belt, I wanted to ask you if there was something that you know about yourself now as a writer that you didn't know before you were published. That's an interesting question. I think part of the journey is about trusting yourself. So every time I sit down to write a book, I think I should do more planning and I Google how to write a book <laughs> <laughs> because I, I don't plan that much and I and I think I, now I'm trying to accept that this is my process. And I see people who plan wonderfully like Jane Harper planning great detail, but that's just not me. So I think now for me, trusting the process, which my process is a fast first draft and then doing a lot of uh, reworking and edits. So getting the story out for myself and trusting, trusting that process. 
I'm not sure that answers your question. Um, it, does, it, does, <laughs> it perfectly does. It's, yeah, it's understanding the way you work, yeah, which you may not have known before you were published. And I think because we do talk a lot about process now, it's a lot more um, transparent. It's like people talk about how they work and then people work in so many different ways. Even as so I was just in Canberra doing some talks and a man said to me, oh, do you do you just write linearly yeah. or do you, you know, do you skip ahead and write other scenes as they come to you? And I said, no, I write. I write from start to finish and especially I, I think because I'm looking for the suspense and the red herrings and you know and that sort of tension that goes on but I'm saying to him but you know if you want you can write I know lots of people who just write the most important scene first and then write towards that and and drop scenes in and write around that which is not me at all but I know people who do that so <laughs> it works for them. There's just not one way of doing it right? Absolutely not yeah. Yeah. Find your way, find your way. And and I would always, before I was published, what, re, listen and read a lot about how other people were doing it as if I could just find the magic from one person. But I guess that's it. You really have to do your own writing and work out what works for you and then, you know, you can get tips along the way, but it's got to be the process that works for you. I think it's a bit like this magic pill I think everybody's looking for when they're writing. It's like this, this panacea of the perfect conditions and and circumstances under which to write but there's no perfect way there's no magic formula no no I think that's the thing there's a million different ways and they're all probably as difficult as each other (laughs) (laughs) oh absolutely what would you say was the best thing about being published well firstly having readers you know who are just so so interested and engaged in what you've written and want to discuss the story and discuss the characters like they're real people and for me when I'm writing it I'm living it so that's really exciting that they've come into this world and and they believe it and want to talk about it as well and then also I think what you don't realize before you become part of the I'm gonna say industry is how wonderfully supportive everybody is in the industry and how it's this sort of great collegiate atmosphere between authors and publishers and it, it's a really it's a really nice environment to work in and and when you're working home alone and you don't often see people it's then so nice to go to a festival for example and talk to other authors and hear what they're doing and you know talk about your problems with a particular book or writing or what so you have that sense of you know like you're at the water cooler at work you finally yeah. get that <laughs> Petronella if Listeners want to learn more about you and your books. Where can they find you? My website is petronellamcgovern.com.au. I'm on Instagram. I think something like petronella underscore mook, I think. And Facebook. I'm on Twitter, but not so often. So Instagram is probably my best spot. Petronella, I wanted to say congratulations once again on this brilliant book. Listeners out there, if you're fans of a psychological suspense genre, this is the book for you. Go out and get it. Thank you for joining me on Talking Aussie Books today. Thanks so much, Claudine. That's a wrap, folks. If you enjoyed this podcast episode, please drop me a line via my webpage at claudinetanellis.com, via Instagram, Facebook or Twitter. Alternatively, consider leaving a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or Google Podcasts. Until next time, happy reading.